You're listening to the Lead to Soar podcast, bringing you the best career advice and mentorship from around the globe. Lead to Soar is a production of A Career That Soars. Learn more by visiting leadtosoar.com. Hello, hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Lead to Soar. I'm your producer, Mel Butcher, for this show, the Lead to Soar podcast, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. Here on Lead to Soar, we're all about connecting women with the actionable career advice, resources, and network they need to have a career that soars. You can learn more about joining a career that soars by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the ACTS link. All right, let's get to today's show. We're releasing this episode in January, which of course is Mentorship Month. And the conversation we have for you today aligns under this topic. We're talking about allyship in the workplace. This conversation is between Michelle Redfern, co-founder of A Career That Soars, and Karen Catlin, the creator of Better Allies. Let me share a bit more about Karen, and then we'll go straight to the discussion. After spending 25 years building software products and serving as a vice president of engineering at Macromedia and Adobe, Karen Catlin witnessed a sharp decline in the number of women working in tech. Frustrated but galvanized, she knew it was time to switch gears. Today, Karen is an acclaimed author and speaker on inclusive workplaces. She is the author of three books, Better Allies, Everyday Actions to Create Inclusive, Engaging Workplaces, The Better Allies Approach to Hiring, and Present, A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking. So without further ado, we bring you Karen Catlin. Today I'm, I'm coming to you from uh, Wadawurrung country and the, the lands of the Wadawurrung people in our First Nations people in Australia who are our traditional custodians. They've been looking after our land, our waterways, our air, our flora and our fauna for over 65,000 years and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Thank them for their, their custodianship and uh, welcome them if they're listening today. I also welcome Karen Catlin, the founder of Better Allies. It just seems such a simple thing to say, Karen, to say you're the founder of Better Allies. But let me, uh, or please, may I talk about my own experience with you. I came across Karen and Better Allies through my my partner, business partner, Susan Colantuna, who is the co-host and, and co-founder with me of A Career That Soars. Susan did retweeted this, this amazing bit of information two or three years ago. And I went, wow, that's a really cool thing around inclusion. Let me have a look at this Better Allies business. And so began a slightly stalkerish admiration of Karen and Better. Oh, mind you, I didn't know it was Karen at the start because Better Allies was this kind of Anon- esoteric. I was anonymous. Yes, was you anonymous. were. You were. The- and I thought, who is this person? Uh, and, of course, in the work that you do and I do, Karen, gender and identity and what have you is is irrelevant or should be irrelevant or invisible, but I was fascinated. Who is this person? So I did set about slightly stalkerishly following you and avidly learning from you and your books and your 
podcasts that you've been on and interviews and what have you. So here we here we are today. Why have I asked Karen to come on for the Lead to Soar podcast? Because I admire her so much and where we have such a values alignment and our our mission in the world. Well, I can't say, you know, I can't speak for your mission, but certainly with my mission in the world and my purpose is so set on fire by what you do, Karen. So welcome to Lead to Soar, the podcast by a career that soars. And without me uh, gushing on too much further, how about you uh, introduce yourself to our audience and who is Karen? What does she stand for and what are you all about? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And I'm I'm really honored. It is a pleasure and delighted to be here. So a little bit about myself. First of all, I spent about 25 years working in tech. I am based in Silicon Valley. That's where I spent most of my professional career. I used to write code for a living. I have a computer science degree, so I am a techie. And over time, I moved into leadership roles. Uh, Most recently, I was a vice president of engineering at Adobe. And during that 25 years I worked in tech, I noticed a decline happening in women in the industry. There used to be a lot more women getting computer science degrees, sitting side by side with me in the workplaces. And it went, it, it went down, it was visible, um, the decline that was happening kind of before my eyes. So while I was still at Adobe, I was like, oh my gosh, I am the most senior woman on the engineering side of the the company. I have a role to play to help women across the company be successful and stay at Adobe and grow their careers if that's where they wanted to be. So I started our women's employee resource group. I started mentoring a lot of women. I started basically looking out for gender diversity in different meetings I was in and advocating for gender diversity. And Michelle, I'll tell you, I love doing that work so much and less so the VP of engineering work that I was doing. And so eventually I was like, you know, I want to do this full time. I want to help women across tech, not just at Adobe, but across tech. I want, I want to help more women be successful. So I started a leadership coaching practice. And this, this goes back about eight years. And my coaching practice, I love doing it. I focus on women who do work in tech, helping them grow leadership skills Soon after starting it, I realized I had a big problem. (laughs) And the big problem was not with my clients. They are all amazing. But the big problem was that they were all working in tech companies where the closer you got to the C-suite and to the CEO, just the mailer and paler it got. And with all due respect to anyone who's listening who's male and or pale, I am pale myself, I'm white, It's just, that's what the demographics revealed. And so these companies, even though everyone I think in leadership expected and thought that their companies were true meritocracies where people could get get ahead based on their merits, based on their work, based on their contributions, they weren't because there was better representation at the entry level than at the C-suite. So that's when I sort of started, I started exploring, it's like, oh my gosh, I really need to help my clients, I really need to help all of tech become more inclusive. That's a huge mission, right? And, you know, what's the first thing anyone does these days when they want to change the world? You know, they start a Twitter handle. So I started the Twitter handle at Better Allies about six years ago now. And my goal was simply to share these everyday actions anyone could take to be more inclusive at work. Things like, you know, I, I, I pledge to pay attention to interruptions that happen in meetings 
and redirect the conversation back to the person who's interrupted with a simple, you know, hey, I'd like to hear Michelle finish her thought, things like that. By the way, let's let's talk about the fact that I was anonymous on Twitter for a while. Let's just a little, little side note here. Yes. So I was anonymous and I have to admit, I was pretty much pretending to be a man on Twitter. I wonder. Um, I did wonder if that was the strategy. Yeah, it was. It was a strat. I just thought it would be more powerful and more like I would reach the audience I wanted to reach, which was primarily men. I wanted to be just one of the guys sharing what I was learning, and it felt good to do it that way. I was really kind of channeling various men I'd worked with over the years. Like, how would they show up? How would they say this? and adjusting my conversational style to be a little bit what I attributed to be more masculine. And it was all first person, you know, I do this, I do this, I do this, or I pledge to do this, or I want to do this better. And I stayed anonymous until I wrote my book. And at that point, when you write a book, it's a lot of work. And I wanted to get all the credit at that point, I must admit. So when I published my book, Better Allies, which is now two years ago, I did associate my name with that Twitter handle and started owning the fact that it was me behind that. Yeah. There are so many things in in that opening statement. The first one that I had, the aha moment that I had, and particularly I had it when I was reading the book, was that tech used to be female dominated. And I went, really? Now, why didn't I know that? And then I thought, because I have been immersed in the imagery and the prevailing, uh, I guess, the prevailing dominant uh, folk um, of tech, for the, I, I guess, for the last 20 odd years, which, as you said, has, has been uh, particularly when more senior and the very public faces of tech, particularly since the dot-com boom, has been very male and very pale. So so that was my, my first aha moment. My second reflection as you were speaking was, my goodness, we've had such similar epiphanies. You will probably be asked, so from when did you decide to go out on your own? Or what made you do it? Or what what, you know, when did you discover your purpose in life? I'm often asked, you know, when did you become a feminist? And I said, well, the day I was born. But but it was interesting because I had a similar experience to you that I was advanced in my career and pretty senior. I was an executive in a first in a global outsourcing company, then in a in a one of the big four banks in Australia, getting myself more and more involved in employee resource groups. I was chairing a, a disability council, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm thinking, gee this is great. I really like that. And working out that, hmm, these are the days that are good days when I'm doing this stuff. So how can I have more good days? And how can I do less of the job that I'm actually paid to do? Right. Michelle, I don't know if you felt this, but I, it didn't, it did it took me a while to realize this, but the days I was excited to go to work, like I couldn't wait to shower, get dressed, get in the car, drive to my office, those were the days I had something on my calendar that had to do with the women's initiative that I started. Yeah. Yep. Something. And same then here. the other days I was going to work. Yeah. Felt yeah. The same way. Me too. And it was interesting though, because I, I had my second last boss in, in the corporate world was someone who really got me. And he knew that this was such an important part of my leadership what I would call what we now say, putting on our leadership mantle every single day. 
such an important part of who I was as a leader, how I identified as a leader, that he said to me, I, I want you to do this role, this particular role that I was doing. But he said, you've got to have at least 25 to 30% of it around creating a more inclusive, equal, equitable organisation. That's part of your job. And I just thought, where have you been all my life? Unfortunately, he and I didn't manage to work together for too long. And, and actually, that was part of my saying, this is what I want to do. So it's interesting. And then the, the third observation that I would make is that you used your personal greatness as a leader to say, I need to do something about this. I am, I am observing my organisation, but more broadly an industry, which is, I mean, tech is so ubiquitous. It's, you know, we're, we're sitting on tech platforms today talking. And, and you, you stepped into your leadership greatness and we know that our content is based on the way you're perceived as a leader. So what we help our members, the women who follow us, the women who, who join in our platform at A Career That Soars, we want them to know that your proven and your perceived leadership skills are essential for career advancement and to have a career that soars. And for me, what I heard so strongly coming through in what you were telling, sharing with the audience at the start, Karen, was your leadership. Achieving, well, using your personal greatness to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. So it just comes through so strongly for me. And, and I suppose the, the question, the first question that I have is, and we talked about outcomes, uh, you like to measure outcomes. Before we came on air, we, we were talking about how you measure the impact of what you're doing, the outcomes, which is exactly what we talk about. So when you think about achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes in your work, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Yes. So there are the vision. The vision is something I can never measure, I feel. The vision is that all of workplaces everywhere are more inclusive. You know, I started out just focusing on tech, but I soon started expanding to include examples and research for other kinds of workplaces. So I really care about making all workplaces whether they are for-profit, non-profit, educational institutions, healthcare institutions, whatever. I want every place to be inclusive and to be the kind of place that employees want to be working at and that they can all do their best work, thrive, grow in their career, have a career that soars. But I don't know how to measure that. So what do, what do I measure? How do I measure my impact? Well, I do look at book sales, definitely. I look at how many people I reach through all my speaking and my podcasts, um, just rough estimates of how many people I am reaching with my message as I am speaking. And I also look at growth on social media. Who is following me? How is my newsletter subscription number and, and uh, subscription base growing? All of those things are important indicators to me that I am reaching more and more people and especially with many of these things, it's word of mouth, it's a viral effect. And so that is important to me. I'll also say that I, well, I'm a solopreneur. I have a business of one here and I do hire subcontractors to help me out with projects and ongoing work. But I'll say as a solopreneur, it can be very lonely. 
And the positive reinforcement that I get through the metrics that I just shared with you are super important. I look every week at my newsletter subscription base and when I, it, it grows every week, thank goodness. But that like helps fuel me to keep pushing forward, even though I'm sometimes just all, my, all by myself here trying to figure out, is this making a difference? When I see how many people subscribe every week, it's like, yes, this is making a difference. And I keep mm-hmm. going. And I hear you as as a solopreneur and someone who has very strong alliance partners and subcontractors and, and a whole bunch of other things. It is super important to be able to continue to build, continue to do the work that you do by building your own, I guess, your internal compass or feeding, you know, filling your own cup. And interestingly enough, I see metrics that matter. Um, So those measures of success for organisations, whether it's an organisation of one, uh, like yours is and mine, uh, or an organisation of one million, those things are essential. And we know that any woman who wants to move into, well, we say the C-suite, but, you know, let's face it, you and I are in the C-suite. We're chief executives of our own destiny. But we know that women in organisations who who want to advance their career, who want to move into the C-suite or however they define success, we know that they must have business, strategic and financial acumen. So all of the things that you've just talked about, if you cast your mind back both over your career as someone who worked for other organisations and, of course, working for yourself and in other organisations, what are the, I guess, three, if you can think of them, pivotal experiences that you had that helped you to both build or strengthen and demonstrate your business strategic and financial acumen? Let's talk about strategy. Mm-hmm. I remember many years ago when I was still growing my career, moving into that VP level, I got the feedback, like, Karen, you're not strategic enough. And I remember one of my employees, as they were leaving, I helped, at some point he wanted to be doing something else within the organization. I helped support that, found him another role. And as he was leaving, he said, Karen, you should have pushed us on our strategy more. He gave me that feedback. And at the time, I have to admit, I'm like, what's that even mean? Like, it's not very actionable. Like, to Mm -hmm. be more strategic, what does it mean to be a strategic thinker, to push people on strategy? Like, I I really didn't know. It wasn't actionable to me. So I started paying attention. Like, who is a strong strategist in my company? Who has that reputation of being really good at strategy? And I used to think that they had some crystal ball I didn't have. Like they had this ability to see the future, predict what was going to happen, set direction. And really, it's not that at all. They tended to be people who are very bold and audacious with what they thought we should be shooting for. They would, would paint a picture of something that was like, I, like, how are we ever going to get there? Not sure. But by painting the picture of this future desired state that is very attractive for whatever reason, based on your mission, your growth projections, your revenue, whatever, by painting that picture, you get people to understand what they can be doing to advance towards that end result. So I realized that they didn't have this crystal ball. They're just very bold and audacious with what they think they can be doing. And to give some tangible kind of examples, If we look at the nonprofit NGO space, 
they are full of these wonderful examples, like Habitat for Humanity. Their strategic vision is to put a roof over everyone's head, like have a home for everyone. They're never going to get there, not in my lifetime anyway, but Mm -hmm. that's okay because that allows them to gather support, financial support, volunteer support, and so forth, and keep pushing forward towards that vision. The Gates Foundation is another good example of a nonprofit, and they have many, many, many initiatives, but one is a world without malaria. Again, not sure how they're going to get there, but they work towards that. They put money, they put, they say fund research, they fund supplies. So I think that with anything that we are doing professionally, we should have that vision of a little bit bolder, a little out of our comfort zone, not quite sure how we will get there, but setting that as this is our strategy. This is what success looks like is super important. I'll just say one other thing. Well, maybe maybe two more things about strategy. One is these leaders, when they have this strategic vision and when they are respected strategists, they repeat themselves a lot. They keep saying what that vision is. As everyone knows, our vision is to put a roof over everyone's head. You know, they, they say that probably eight or 10 times a day. And so we have to get comfortable with repeating ourselves and pushing that that vision, that information out to the point that we think we're a broken record, but not everyone else does. Oh, Karen, um, I, just, I just love that. And you've just made me think about a great mentor of mine saying, gee, Michelle, when you say something often enough, it becomes the truth. And saying the <laughs> right thing often enough means it becomes the truth for more people. I love that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Okay. One last thing about strategy. Mm. Strategic leaders use the darn word strategy a lot. They are, they just, it's like woven through their conversation very naturally. If we approach this from a strategic point of view, we need to understand what our competition is doing in this space, right? Or I have some questions about the strategy you're presenting. Like they just use that word strategy. So I actually have my clients practice using that even in a home setting. For example, like talking to their partner about, okay, what's our strategy for getting all the chores done this weekend? Like yep. just start using it, get comfortable with it. I have a client who she was just starting a new job. She wanted to rebrand herself as she started this new job from being the get it done girl. Like mm-hmm. she got it done. She wanted to be, re- she wanted to rebrand herself in this new position as more of the strategist and less of the doer. And so We talked about a number of things, but one was this hack about using the word strategy a lot. Well, she just excelled at this. And within a few months, her CEO reached out to her and she was a senior director. So a couple levels below the CEO, the CEO reached out to her and said, I want to give you some feedback. Um, You have brought an incredible strategic focus to this department that we've never had before. Like, yay. That is (laughs) sensational. Isn't it interesting, this is very much about having the skill, but demonstrating it as well. So some of us may be thinking, but I am a strategic thinker. I do think about the the long-term strategy. Yeah, sure, I get stuff done every day in the workplace, but I'm really thinking about, you know, horizon one, horizon two, whatever it may be. But are you demonstrating it to the right others? And I think that's a really important piece that I want to draw out. Of, of that success story, she started to demonstrate it to those who matter in the organisation, particularly those who matter for her career progression. It's a great, great story. You're listening to Lead to Soar, 
a podcast production by A Career That Soars. We're so grateful that you joined us for today's conversation. Thank you for downloading. You can listen again on your podcast platform of choice or by visiting leadtosoar.com. We also greatly appreciate when you share Lead to Soar. Sharing Lead to Soar helps us grow and allows us to continue providing this amazing free resource. Sharing is caring, folks. Thanks again. And now back to the show. And I suppose the other thing I, I want to explore there, Susan and I talk a lot to women about how am I prioritising my time to achieve the business's strategic and financial goals? So I think it's a really a good way to anchor activity. But what about those financial goals and what's been your, I guess, experience and advice around your building and demonstrating your financial acumen? You know, I do remember being a little just okay with ignoring it as a software engineer, as someone who was just working on just, just working on building products. I didn't have profit and loss, P&L responsibility. I could ignore it. Someone else's problem. But I did have the opportunity to go to a class that my company offered. It was on site and it was all about just reading balance sheets. Mm -hmm. That's what the class was. And it, in some ways, is the simplest thing in the world, but I just forced myself out of my comfort zone and forced myself to take that class and learn what it was to read a balance sheet and understand a little bit more about the terminology that was thrown around. Mm. I also, at one point, was asked to join a cost of goods committee. Oh, cost of goods, uh, for, if anyone doesn't know, but this, this goes back for me, it was back when software was shipped on diskettes and CD-ROMs in boxes with printed manuals, shrink wrapped and, you know, all of that. And a cost of the cost of goods is literally the cost of the, you know, every piece of paper that put that gets put in there, the shrink wrapping process. If you have four color boxes or just single color, one color boxes, all of that adds to the cost of goods. Plus you end up amortizing some of the development costs towards every single sale. And of course, the more profits you can get out of every box that you sell, the better. So you want to keep lowering those cost of goods. So that was an incredible opportunity for me to learn about some of the really nuanced, specific details of a business and the gears you could start uh, kind of spinning or adjusting so that you could be more profitable on every sale. That stuck with me, that that learning. Um, And as I think about any listeners out there is, these are examples of like, I was not responsible for supply chain work. This was like, I was an engineer. I was a project manager, I think at the time. It's like, but the opportunity someone gave me to sit on that committee and learn and roll up my sleeves and understand this part of the business that I really didn't need to know really had a long lasting impact on me. What a terrific example of, well, demonstrating your personal greatness, but someone else saying, hey, I think this might be a really beneficial experience for Karen that will, you know, uh, stand you in good stead for for the the remainder of your career. And I appreciate that example because there will be many of, of the women 
and men, but uh, people listening to our call today saying, well, I kind of, I don't have P&L responsibility. But what we want everyone to know is that you are a cost to your organisation and you've got to work out how your organisation is going to get a return on the investment they're making you. So what else can you do to help drive the revenue arrow up and the cost arrow down, you know, and and sitting in or taking advantage of those experiences that are offered to you um, are terrific. And and for you, recognising that this wasn't a comfort area and, and I'm very transparent with folks that I work with and 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 lead and facilitate and teach that numbers I still I am good at them but I work I have to have time to work at them it's not a natural thing for me but I I have to make time and I know I do so making time for that good advice it's also a good segue to talk about mentorship clearly that person who said hey Karen I want you to sit on this cost of goods steering committee or, or, or working committee uh, had an interest in you and they wanted to expose you to an experience that they knew for however they knew that was going to be beneficial to you. How did that come about? First of all, that I suppose, was that person a mentor or have you had mentors that have, you've had similar experiences to that have helped you lift and look at your organisation or the impact you're having on your organisation in a different way? Oh, yeah. As I think back on that example, that cost of goods committee, I'm sure it was my boss who who recommended me or asked me to, to work on it. And it literally might have been like, he had been asked to like find somebody. Mm, mm. <laughs> it might not have been like so like strategic in terms of this is going to be good for Karen's career. It's more like we have a need and Karen's going to fill it. So I, I can't say that was a mentorship type of thing, even though it had long lasting impact and benefits to me. Oh my God. Okay. So instead, yeah, I want to answer your question with more of a cautionary tale about mm-hmm. what I wish a sponsor or a mentor would have done for me. Okay. Cautionary tale. Back when I was working in corporate America, there was one time I was going into my boss's staff meeting, the weekly staff meeting. And I share this in my book. I was going in and one of my colleagues, we'll call him John, made up name, we'll call him John. One of my colleagues said something like, hey, Karen, are you on a flight tonight or tomorrow morning? And I'm like, what flight? What are you talking about? He's like, well, to the offsite. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, it turns out that the CEO of our company had arranged a senior leadership offsite at his vacation compound on a lake. And it was a plane ride away. And he had invited all of the VPs in the organization, senior VPs, except for me. Okay. Ouch. Right. Ouch, ouch, ouch. And in, you know, at the moment, in the moment I was angry about it. I wish that this guy, John had raised a stink. I don't think he did. He said something like, that's not right, but he should have gone to the CEO's assistant and said, you know, WTF, (laughs) she invited. And, um, but I don't think he ever did that. So I was angry in the moment and feeling very dejected and not included, of course. But what I have since sort of come to maybe peace about is that I think it was because I was not visible enough. Mm-hmm. I was not visible enough with a CEO. I don't think he knew what work I was doing, the strategic impact I was having, the importance of having me be at this offsite to 
you know, basically have great conversations and get to know my coworkers across the company more. He didn't want to invest in me. He didn't know me. Instead of um, getting mad, I'm going to get even, and I'm going to get <laughs> even by nothing nefarious, but, but simply empowering a lot more women to be highly visible. And so as you think, I'm getting back to your question about like mentors, sponsors, and so forth. Those are critical people who can help you identify how to be more visible in your organization, in your field, if it's if you can think about it more broadly with the people at the top of, of these organizations. Mm. The, the ones that we call the right others when we talk about strategic networking. So there's two things that occur to me as you tell that cautionary tale and, yeah, ouch, I would have been, I'd like to think I would have managed myself as well as you did, Karen, but I don't know that I would have. So there's two things. One, being visible to the right others and using the right language when you have the opportunity with those others. So you've given us the example of using the word strategy, that strategy to be strategic. Drop the word strategy in there. But that language of the, the language of power, the language of business outcomes is, is what we talk about. So giving yourself the opportunity, number one, to be exposed to the right others, whether it's in your organisation or more broadly in your sector or your industry, and then using the right language. There's a story in the book, uh, another cautionary tale, and, and I'll let you tell it, but I'll give a little pricey, which was, so I started my business and I started networking and I looked at my network and I went, oh, it's a bit homogenous. Oh, I'm kind of not hanging out with what I call my target market. I'm surrounding myself with a bunch of people who, and, and it's interesting because I, I work so much with women, which is which is terrific. But when I'm talking about equity and inclusion in workplaces, I'm preaching to the choir. And, and you had this aha moment about who you needed to be, well, number one, your network itself. It was, I think you used the word stale. It was homogenous and it wasn't going to help you achieve your strategy in the context of a woman inside an organisation and that example you gave of, oh, I'm not invited to the offsite, what advice would you give her right now? Yes. We all need to build our network before we need it. That's yeah. the key kind of just message there. And in my book, I shared that story as I started this coaching business. Frankly, I stayed in my comfort zone. Even though I'm an introvert, I was networking with other women. I was going to women in tech events. I was going to girl geek dinners, which we have here in the San Francisco Bay area. I thought I was networking like a champ, like I'm going to reach all these women who want coaching. And I did, I did expand my network. I did meet so many women. I found so much inspiration from the, the talks I went to the meetups and so forth. Yet I should have been having more opportunities to network with men who were in positions of power who could recommend me for their the woman in their organization who they wanted to provide coaching for. They're the ones who had the purse strings, so to speak. They controlled the budget. They were the ones who could make decisions. Um, and so it was an aha moment. And it's so interesting because I, as I, with my work on Better Allies, I'm often thinking about reaching out and speaking to white men about like diversify your network with more women. But here was the opposite. It was me being a white woman. I needed to diversify my, my network with more men. Yeah. And 
frankly, we all have networks that are full of people just like us. We like hanging out with these people. We, we enjoy, we have something in common. It's easy to network. Um, but yet, so much more important is for us to cross I call them uh, boundaries or lines of to, to reach out and diversify our networks with pe people of different genders, of different sexual orientations and identities, of different races, of different ages. Um, mm. It's so rich when we, when we when we do that. We learn from people. We have um, the ability to have so much more business success too, whether it's because of some personal goal, like I had to find coaching clients or because we want to hire more people or recommend people for speaking engagements if we're putting on some sort of event. When we have that rich, diverse network, we just have a better solution ahead of us. And as you become more senior in an organisation, and, and I imagine you will have experienced this as well, Karen, as a VP in a tech organisation, you would have been on the lookout for the best and brightest talent the best and brightest new trends, the best and brightest suppliers, <laughs> the best and brightest insert whatever it is here. And as a, as a very senior person in an organisation, your external network, a diverse external network and the messaging, it, it is such an important part of your leadership role. Why does that get overlooked in, I'm asking you, why do you think it gets overlooked in the advice that's given to women as they try to build their careers and head towards the C-suite or their version of the C-suite? Well, I don't know if it is overlooked anymore. I think there's a lot of awareness of this now. When I was starting my career, not so much, um, mm -hmm. but I, I feel kind of hopeful. I feel like there is a lot of advice and encouragement um, uh, aimed at women as well as members of other underrepresented groups of making sure you invest in time in, in building that network before you, before you need it. I recently read Minda Hart's book, The Memo. Have you read oh, this? Not yet. It's on my pile. Okay. <laughs> well, put it on the top of the pile. Okay. I okay. recommend cool, that. Cool. Yep. Um, and Minda is a Black woman in America, and her book, The Memo, is basically, I don't remember the byline, but it's basically advice to women working in corporate America. Like, it's all, these, all the things no one's told you about. And early on in her book, she talks about, like, Yes, as a black woman, you might not want to be going to that after hours, grab a beer, cocktail, you know, with coworkers. You know, you may just want to go home because you're tired of being like just in this environment. She said, but you got to do it. Um, and she is just like very specific. Like you have to be making these relationships with coworkers, even though those aren't the people you would normally want to be hanging out with. You wouldn't normally call your friends, perhaps. But so it just, I feel like the advice is out there, not just from people like you and I, but also people like Ninja Hart's recommending this. And it, it's great advice. Hi folks, Michelle Redfern here. Hey, I want to talk to you about how anyone at any level can wear the mantle of leadership. Traditionally, when a queen is crowned, she dons the mantle and takes the staff of royalty. These are symbols of elevated responsibility. But hey, you're lucky. You don't have to wait for someone to give you your mantle of leadership. You can don it yourself right now. And when you do, the path to advancement and a career that soars gets a little clearer. Based on No Ceiling, No Walls, our six-week program, Your Mantle of Leadership, is perfect for emerging leaders. Or if you're in a more senior position but have never had the benefit of leadership development, our course is for you. In the six weeks, we focus on foundational leadership skills, 
We brainstorm leadership challenges and opportunities, and we talk about the successful moves that you need to make to take you from career start into early and middle management positions. So I look forward to seeing you in Your Mantle of Leadership, which you can find under Courses in a Career That Soars. I want to segue into a, a question around more advice. So, so Minda's giving advice about being a black woman uh, in, in corporate America. You and I are talking about women more broadly, women in all sorts of workplaces, women from all walks of life and who identify in all sorts of different ways. If I think about women at the start of their career in environments like you found yourself in, male-dominated, male and pale particularly, so a great many of of our members are working in male-dominated environments. Now, you could argue that the world is still fairly male dominated from a workplace environment, but it's not at the career at career start. Typically, you see anywhere between forty and eighty percent, depending on what industry. So, if I think about a woman, uh, one of our members, in a male dominated environment, say engineering, technology, um, whatever it may be, what advice would you give her for successfully navigating an environment where she is an other? How much time do we have? <laughs> I know, I know, not not enough, unfortunately. But this is we 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 get the question so often. So I'm I'm, I'm bumping up against the fact that I'm another. I'm a woman. I'm this. I'm that. And and I, I stand know. out. And I think it is it's hard to answer only because I think it's very situational and mm. contextual. If a woman is feeling that they are not being invited to certain meetings, for example, they're, they're being left out of the loop, whether that's social fun things or more business related. You really want to enlist an ally, an ally, yeah. someone who you respect, who you think respects you. It doesn't have to be your boss. It could be somebody else who can be looking out, making sure you get those invitations. For example, that's, that's one thing you can be doing. You can be seeking mentors. And this may be awkward, how you really approach someone. You know, I always say, if you're think about seeking a mentor, be very specific in your ask. Absolutely. Um, I like the way you, you present your strategy. <laughs> I'll get back to that. I like the way you present your strategy. Would you have time to meet with me just once to talk a little bit about your preparation process for whenever you have to give a, you know, present the strategy at your company meeting? Um, be very specific with your ask. This is what I want to learn from you. This is how long I want to, I think it will take one meeting. Maybe it's once a month over six months, but, but be specific. So, so seek mentors though, to help you learn things you just haven't had the opportunity to learn yet. Um, there's no shame in like, I just haven't learned that yet. And I want to, I also, and this one is a little bit more, not dire, but a little bit more serious. If a woman is sensing that there's something a little bit off with a person, a situation, there is maybe a microaggression. Maybe someone just keeps commenting on her looks versus her work. Maybe there's an off-color joke. Maybe there's just something that's a little unsettling. I do recommend keeping a log. A log Mm. of this is the date, this is the meeting, this is what was going on, this is what the person said. And you do not do this on your work computer. You do this on a personal computer, a home computer, or a physical notebook, a paper notebook. But you need to keep a log of the, the things that just feel a little bit off or maybe really off. 
Because if it comes to the point of you feeling like your career is being impacted because of that person, you have a track record. You have something that you can bring to HR or if it's serious to an attorney who can represent you and have a very clear record of here's all the stuff that's built up to the point we are today. So I hope people don't get to that point, but I do give that advice is just start recording it. I think that's that that is great advice. And it reminds me of some advice I got from a woman that I admire. She's a, a coach in Australian rules football and her name's Beck Goddard. I just adore her. And she said to me, she gave me some advice once. She said, you know, Michelle, in a football club, if there's a, a woman coach or a player or whoever she may be, and she has has what appears to be a disproportionate reaction to a particular situation, understand that there will have been 1,000 situations behind that that have led her to have that reaction, you know, the good old straw that breaks the camel's back. So I, I think your advice is really, really sound um, around that. And, yes, I hope that women don't get to that point either, Karen. You mentioned the A word, ally. This is a great way for me to ask, on behalf of our members who are senior and executive level leaders, how can they be a better ally to those women um, that that are going to come after them in their workplaces, in their industries, in their in their sectors, because we want them to, you know, I, I, I've got to preface this with, I do think that there is uh, the disproportionate, and that one of my favourite words, a disproportionate expectation on women to be much kinder and nurturing and bring everyone forward than there is on men. So we, we are held to a higher, higher behavioural standard. However, putting that my and discomfort with that to one side. What is the advice that you would give a senior executive woman leader about how she can be a better ally to other women, particularly those from underrepresented groups? Yes. I'll broaden it, not just to other women, but to anyone from an underrepresented group. And I think yep. that's an important message of my work on better allies is there is um, often overlapping and intersectional ways that people are members of underrepresented groups and um, a black man or a disabled person or a transgender individual. There's so many people who you can be using your position of power to basically open career doors for. Um, So I do think about it very holistically. And people who are listening who are in those more senior positions, your, your job, I mean, it, in one word, it's sponsor sponsorship, but that sponsorship doesn't have to be a big sponsorship program. It can be these everyday acts of sponsorship that open career doors. Here are some examples. One is if you're in a position to recommend someone for a stretch assignment, some new thing that the business needs that no one knows how to do, or is an opportunity for someone to learn a new skill, or perhaps to give an update at the all hands meeting for the company, um, you know, and get up on stage and do that. Think about, you know, next time that happens, think about who normally comes to mind. And if it's someone in the majority, a white man, for example, go back and think, okay, that's my, my usual go-to. I know that they could do it. No problem. But who else could benefit from such an experience? Who's never done this before. So, Just think about who you're giving these um, kinds of assignments to. And these assignments are often the 
like rocket booster fuel for a career. I mean, they just, the, the visibility that one gets when they are working on some high profile stretch assignment or, or giving an update or speaking in public, um, these, are, these are just booster fuel for a career. So that's why I really think you wanna make sure you're sprinkling around with other people. Another thing you can do is make sure that you're endorsing people publicly. Here, quick example of what this looks like. It's a story I share in the book, but when I first joined Adobe, my manager, who was a senior vice president, highly respected, had been there forever. I was in an engineering leadership meeting with him and I heard him say, well, you know, what I learned from Karen Catlin is the following. And he then went on to sort of summarize something I had said in a one-on-one -on -one the previous week. Him saying he had learned something from me made me feel great, but it also built my credibility up in like just immediately. And I think that helped me navigate the just building relationships with all my new peers. So those, those are two things that I think anyone who is in a senior, senior position can be doing for others. I really appreciate that, Karen, because I, two things around mentor be asked, be very specific with your mentor, what you want, but then as a sponsor and as a mentor, it doesn't have to be a big thing, just simply raising their profile by calling them out, recognizing them. It's just such a, we have positions of privilege and power and how do we use that to elevate, as I said, that, as you said, I should say, that rocket fuel, it's, it's, it's terrific. We're getting sadly to the end of our time together because I could pick your brains all day, but you would hate that because it's nighttime for you. I, I would like you to very quickly reflect for us, when have you had to change your own mindset? When have you had to rethink about the way you do stuff, whether it's me, work, family, life, leadership? Yeah, so many examples. I remember being on a walk with a mentor and at one point during the walk, she said, hey, Karen, do you do much public speaking? And I have to tell you, had I done much public speaking before that point? Yeah, I was a VP. I had to give like all hands meetings. I spoke on some industry panels and events, but I hated public speaking. I don't think I was very good at it. I certainly, I would make up excuses. Like, you know, someone would say, can you speak on this thing? And I'd be like, I'm busy. And they're like, I haven't even told you what it is yet. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm busy. <laughs> that type of thing. <laughs> I really don't think I was very good. I got nervous, all of that. But when this mentor asked, do you do much public speaking? I realized she was asking because it really could be the key to unlocking this new business, to getting the word out about me, to sharing my perspective and thought process and just perspective on things. And so instead of saying, no, I am not, I don't do it. No, 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 no. I simply said, I need to do more of it. And on that day, I still remember it so vividly. On that day, I set a goal for myself to speak in public once a month because I just had to like force myself to dive into the deep end and get comfortable with this. It was hard, but that was, we'll call it eight years ago. Now I give multiple talks a week. Now yep. I love public speaking. I've given a TEDx talk. I've even written a co-authored a book on public speaking for people who are techies. So there's just one example. Just like I, I had to force, I've said this a few times, force myself out of my comfort zone, shift my mindset of I'm not good at that to I can be good at this and get comfortable with doing it, get some practice. And, um, and it's turned out to be an incredible thing, especially now 
as I try to do a lot of speaking on better allies, I am super comfortable. I don't get the nerves anymore. I, and I really do love every time I get an opportunity to speak. Well, I love every time I hear, have an opportunity to hear you speak. And what you've, you've just said reminds me of Mel, Mel Butcher, our co-host on A Career That Soars, who I learn from every time I, I spend time with her. But she says, moving up begins in your own mind first. And how true is that? And you've just, you've just demonstrated that in spades. Karen, you are a wealth of information. You've been so generous in sharing just a, a tiny, tiny bit of that today um, with us and, and with our, our listeners and our, our members of A Career That Soars and the listeners of Lead to Soar. Thank you so much. I am very, very appreciative of your work and I hope to continue to amplify the work that you do because it is just so fundamental to the work that I do, but it's so fundamental for us to have a world where every person can reach their full potential, which you and I share a vision around that. So from our listeners and our members to you, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me on your show. I feel I feel like I've, I've received a new friend as a result. You and I have known each other just through social media for a number of years, um, but we I have. feel like I have a new friend. So thank you for this time together. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure, Karen. Thank you so much. And uh, well, if you do one thing, and I'm very famous for saying, if you just do one thing, follow at Better Allies across all of the socials and you'll, every single week, you'll, you'll get some great advice about how to be a leader who uses their personal greatness to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. Karen Catlin, founder of Better Allies, I thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Dear listener, thank you again for joining us for another episode of Lead to Soar. If you'd like to get a copy of Karen's books, you can find more information about her and how to order by visiting betterallies.com. That's betterallies.com. Then I also wanted to share again the other book that was mentioned on the show. It's called The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. And that's by author Minda Hartz. One more time, her name is Minda Hartz. So another great book to add to your list. I'm Mel Butcher, the producer of Lead to Soar, and I also serve as a host inside A Career That Soars. A Career That Soars is a space for women to share their ambitions unabashedly. It's where Michelle Redfern and I host courses and workshops geared toward helping women ascend on their career. And it's where you can find your cohort of like-minded women. It's a place to ask questions and get support in your climb up the ladder. But it's also a place where you can give back and provide support to other women who need it. So join us. Learn more by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the ACTS link. I look forward to seeing you inside A Career That Soars. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Lead to Soar. If you're enjoying the show, we so appreciate when you share with friends and colleagues. That's really the best way for us to grow. When you have a moment, consider popping us a kind rating and review on your favorite podcast platform of choice. Your support helps us to build and grow this amazing resource. Lead to Soar is hosted by Michelle Redfern. 
and executive produced by Michelle Redburn and Mel Butcher. If you have questions or suggestions, contact me, Mel, directly inside A Career That Soars or by visiting melbutcher.com. Lead to Soar is a production of A Career That Soars. Learn more about joining A Career That Soars by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the ACTS link. That's leadtosoar.com. Thank you again so much for joining us.